Welcome to Future Charlotte, the podcast where we talk to the people who are shaping the future of our city. I'm your host, Eli Portillo. Our guest today is Ben Gable, a principal at Gresham Smith in Charlotte. And Ben, thank you so much for joining us today. Eli, thank you for having me. Really happy to be here. So tell me about yourself, who you are, what you do, what your work includes, and uh, how you came to Charlotte. Sure. Yeah. So I'm an architect. You know, we hear the term principal. What's some people question? What's that really mean? So my background is architecture. I'm an architect with Gresham Smith, and I started off being interested in architecture as a child. Um, it was something that the how a building goes together always interested me, and that was evidenced by playing with Legos and erector sets and things like that. I was always tinkering on things, trying to build things. And then as I got older, I started to work on some construction sites that my family were involved in as their business. And it just kind of really clicked for me. So I decided, hey, I want to get on the the planning side and the design side and figure out these ideas and problems before they become problems. So that took me to Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana, where I got my undergrad and then ultimately a master's in architecture from the University of Illinois. I started for Gresham Smith right out of school. So I've, I'm one of those lifers. I've been here the entire time. Um, I started in our workplace studio. So office towers, uh, um, mixed use facilities, things of that sort, you know, that type of building. And I got introduced into aviation in 2008 uh, when we were working on the Maynard H. Jackson International Terminal at Atlanta Hartsfield. So it was the, the big international terminal slash concourse F in Atlanta and just, I just fell in love with it. The billing type is super interesting and I've been in aviation architecture ever since. So after we completed the Atlanta project in 2012, I took over and managed a terminal modernization program at Fort Lauderdale. And that was from 2012 to, it's still ongoing. We're kind of wrapping up the last few projects now. And I moved to Charlotte in 2019, so right before COVID hit, which is fun. And I'm helping out with uh, a lot of the different expansion projects that are going on out at CLT. Yeah, when I was a reporter at The Observer, I covered um, aviation and the airport for uh, for a while. And the growth there is just phenomenal. I mean, I didn't realize until I started covering that how fundamental the airport is in Charlotte, as it is in many places, to the city's identity, growth, and opportunities. So you're doing some really interesting stuff, and you're right in the middle of it. Um, you lead the firm's aviation studio. Is your portfolio of work in Charlotte uh, mostly at CLT right now? Uh, you know, our portfolio kind of uh, crosses the entire game of what our company provides in Charlotte. Um, you know, the the project at the airports, which really driving a lot of our aviation work in Charlotte. Uh, that's what most of our staff in Charlotte, their air, aviation architects are focused on. But like I mentioned earlier, we've got 1,100 employees across 26 offices across the nation and uh, a couple international locations. And we focus on aviation, civic and public, healthcare, industrial, mixed use, water and stormwater engineering, transportation engineering, um, workplace design, you name it. And we're doing a little bit of all of that here in Charlotte. Now, some some of those uh, practices aren't as robust as others. You know, we're really working on trying to grow that. But I would say the work key portfolio that we have going in Charlotte right now is our aviation practice. It is our workplace and our mixed use practice, our industrial practice, and then our healthcare practice is probably our largest in the Charlotte office. We're doing a lot of work with, with the different healthcare systems throughout the city. So you had a recent piece that ran in the Charlotte uh, Business Journal in which you asked a question, how do designers work to address the issue of stress? 
a factor that is highly subjective and personal. And in that piece, you know, you talked about the use of technology and biometrics from wearable devices and some ways that those could really begin to help designers understand stress, deal with stress, understand more about how people are moving through and interacting with the built environment. And I think that's a really interesting topic. And it definitely fits with the uh, the future and the futuristic part of this podcast goal. So let's talk about that a little bit. Tell me about biometrics, data, technology, and how that's fitting into design, how you're using that, and how that could help address uh, stress through design and technology. Sure. You know, one thing that we had talked about and we asked a question is something you brought up is, you know, if with stress being so subjective and personal, how do we identify what those triggers are? If it's unique for everyone, right? You know, it's, it's not what works for one person may not work for all. Um, and honestly, the key to you utilizing all this data, because it's a lot of data, like any other big data that we talk about, there's a lot going on and it kind of pulls you in, in 30,000 different directions. How do you hone in on what you really need? And the first step that you know, we, we try to take is to identify we're not going to make a space perfect for everyone. The key is to identify trends and make the space as best as it could possibly be for as many people as we can possibly make it. You know, really, how do we improve the human experience for as many people as possible? So that's the first step. Identify, we're not going to make this perfect for everyone. Let's, let's just do what we can for, for as many people as possible. So to do that, we go through and we take we obtain as much data as we can uh, just throw the kitchen sink at it. I wish I had a better way to explain it, but get, get as much data as you can and start to identify trends. And it's a, it's a higher tech way using utilizing sensors of all different kinds, whether they be wearables or cameras or sensors that actually installed as, as third, third party pieces of equipment. But the way I always like to simplify what we're trying to do in terms of the big picture is something that a lot of people have experienced in college. If you've gone to college, you've been to a, a new uh, portion of the university where they put in a new quad. One of the first things you see is someone came through and came up with this perfect design of how all the sidewalks are going to just work great. And students are going to walk from one point from point A to point B, follow the sidewalk. Everything's going to be great. It's going to be this beautiful landscape, right? And what's one of the first things that happens in the first six months is that students start carving their own paths. You know, they find a, a fastest route from A to B or a preferred route from A to B, and they start wearing a, a path into the grass. And without failure, almost every time you see the maintenance crew coming in and they're pouring a sidewalk where the students want to walk anyways. That example is very similar to what we're trying to do. We're trying to take a more sophisticated approach to identifying what those paths that the students are carving and then design for that ahead of time. And what we can do, and obviously in that scenario, the quad's already built, right? That, figuring out then is figuring out after the fact. That's not, that's not the ideal time to, to have a good design. You want to have good design before you have good construction. Um, so what we're trying to do is take all of the data that we'll observe, and let's just use that same example, the sidewalks going through the quad. If we could take that one example for one university and find that same example from 10 or 15 other universities, we'll start to identify what the trends, what the student's behavior is. Then whenever the 
11th or 12th university is designed, we've already got that data in place. We're making much more intelligent decisions whenever we go through the design process. So that's kind of the big picture idea. Identify the trends and what do we do to utilize those trends to influence design? And you mentioned a few different buckets of data that you know could include uh, wearables, sensors, um, other other technologies. What are some of the ways in which you're able to uh, get data about how people are using a space? And then you also mentioned just the incredible amount of data. How are you able to compile, figure out what's important, what's just noise? Yeah. So there's there's it's a combination of multiple things, and, and the the element that's really made it possible. And it is the whole process of honing that data, that that what do you do with it once you have all that data? It's some of the artificial intelligence um, softwares that are out there now and some that we're actually developing internally to hone in that information, decipher what's important and what's not. Um, In terms of how we're gathering the data to answer your question, it's a combination of uh, video cameras. Uh, some that are already existing and installed on and as security cameras or uh, or could be a, an addition, new cameras that we actually are putting in for the study. Um, it could be wearables, Apple Watch, Fitbit, uh, you name it. Um, it can be, I mean, there's a, a whole litany of other data points that we would identify once we do get some of that, those stress levels from from the Fitbits and the, the Apple Watches and some of the flow analysis that we're getting from video cameras. And that would be things like thermostats. What's the temperature like in this area? What's What light levels do we have? How long are people spending in this uh, space? Noise level. All, all, so we're there are all sorts of different ways that you can obtain all of those different data points. And that's going to kind of be the, the point of information that we're utilizing to formulate what our design should be, what's impacting the human experience, what's what's a positive, what's a negative, how do I, we identify those trends? And I think a lot of it is that's key is some of that that video analytics. It's it's one thing to have everyone wearing wearables and trying to get every single person to opt into a to a study, but yeah, that's not always going to be feasible. Some, sometimes the best way to obtain the information is to use the, the infrastructure that's already in place for any building or, or city or or, uh, or even bigger the system throughout the entire country. And that is we can utilize just a, a camera feed and through some of that software, identify the different elements that are going through different spaces. An example would be like a security checkpoint at an airport. We've already, (laughs) there are a lot of security cameras at airport, right? Through that camera feed, we can input that into the software and it kind of eliminates the human aspect of it. And when I say the human aspect of it, it's kind of, we're not interested in seeing people's faces, names, their personal information. We're not interested in that. We're interested in the path that that particular person takes and making sure that we don't duplicate that information. And then what that starts to do is as we identify different tokens or different elements of information and how they're flowing, we can much more quickly identify points where a passenger may be slowing down. Is it because they don't know where they're going? Maybe it's a signage issue that we need to correct, or perhaps they get to a security checkpoint and they're flowing very well through the queue and then they get to the 
actual x-ray equipment itself and they're just walking back and forth back and forth back and forth back and forth is that uh, that identifies a, a key point okay we've identified an issue at that x-ray machine we can then go and study and observe what's going on in that area it may be the equipment is malfunctioning it may be uh, the TSA agents may need additional training or they're having issues with, with the software and the things they're working with. And maybe the passengers are just panicking because the space isn't very well designed. It could be a whole litany of different elements that are causing that congestion and that uh, lack of flow, lack of passenger flow. But at least we've gone through and utilized that video analytics to identify what that is rather than, okay, you know, the way we used to do it, we would take 10 or 15 different architects or planners, put them throughout the airport, and you just sit there and manually observe. And, and I'm sorry, but anytime you have the human element into it, one, just the sheer amount of time it's going to take to obtain all that data. And then how do you actually put it all together? You've got different inputs, different perspectives. So maybe all the data is not formulated the same. There's just so many different inconsistencies whenever you take the human element into it and the amount of time it takes to obtain that data versus having a, a video feed and a piece of computer software analyzing it. And we're getting an entire day's worth of data in, in minutes compared to what used to take weeks to obtain. Yeah, I mean, it seems like uh, even just I don't know, 10 years ago, back up to before some of the AI advances we've seen now, this would just not be possible. Even if you could collect all this data, it would just be an incredible mountain of data for the tens of thousands of people moving through a space like an airport every day. Yeah, uh, absolutely. How, you know, you talked a little bit about how you used to do this, you know, previously people would sit and observe, uh, you know, how else would you measure how people feel about a space, how they are using a space uh, previous to this. Are you talking qualitative methods like stopping people and asking them survey quest survey type questions? Um, you know, what else? What else was the previous world like? Yeah, the previous world. I mean, we're it, the previous world is very similar to what we're doing today. It's just today is obviously much more advanced. Um, but previously, I could I can. <laughs> um, I can tell you, I shouldn't call them horror stories, but I could tell you about not so fun experiences as a junior architect sitting at a security checkpoint entrance with an actual clicker. I'm sure everybody's seen the clickers before you're uh, doing a quantity count and running a stopwatch. So I'm sitting there with a stopwatch and a clicker and just trying to calculate throughput on how many passengers are we processing per hour through a facility. That's not one, not the most scientific, and two, not the most fun as a junior architect who wants to be designing buildings sitting there running a clicker and a stopwatch, right? Um, you know, another, another way that we would do it is that actual human observation. We would take experts who know how a facility should operate, and they would just observe. They would apply a qualitative uh, assessment of how a facility is operating based off of their experiences that starts to bring in a perception uh, element to it. Some of the, the planners who would go through and, and do those studies were incredibly experienced, very good at what they did, and they provided us with some great information that got us to where we're at today. You know, without that expertise, we wouldn't be where we're at today. But that particular approach really 
limited the number of people that could, could do that to obtain that data. And then like you had mentioned, what do we do once we have all that data? So we have those few experts that are sitting there in an airport terminal or at a hospital watching passengers or uh, patients check in. What, what do they do once they take all that data? Well, they put it in a spreadsheet. Someone's got to manually go through all of that. So that's really what the process looked like. It was a similar process where we would sit there with uh, an expert observing how a space is working. We would ask people to take surveys, which if you're working with the general public, sometimes uh, survey response <laughs> participation levels aren't that great. And usually when people participate in a survey, they're usually disgruntled to some degree. They're like, okay, yeah, I'm not very happy with this place. I'm happy to fill out your survey and tell you how much this place stinks, um, which is not, you know, also the, the greatest bit of information you can get. So yeah, the, one of the better examples that I have on how that qualitative perception may not be ideal is uh, falling water. And uh, if you talk about falling water, the house done by famous architect Frank Lloyd Wright, everybody, when they see that picture, they may not know it's Frank Lloyd Wright, but they know it's falling water. You know, they, they, they ass assess that photo and they see that as great architecture. And it is, it's one of the greatest pieces of architecture that there's ever been, uh, ever been completed. But that's from the mass general public. Uh, for those who have been to falling water, the scale of the interiors of that space vary from nine foot ceilings down to six foot tall ceilings. So if you're a tall person, and you're walking through falling water, your, your perception, your experience is not going to be as positive as shorter individuals. So where I'm going with that is, is we could take the experts who identify a perfect building and a great piece of architecture, and it is, but we do have some individuals who would walk in there and say, this place isn't that great because everything's too short. We try to avoid applying just those qualitative and, and smaller sets of information uh, that we can work with, we try to find something that's going to work for as many humans as possible to improve the human experience for as many as possible. Um, but yeah, I mean, the previous process was really basically the scientific method. We would define a problem, create a hypothesis. We would send those experts out uh, after they've created their hypothesis to test the hypothesis. We would draw conclusions and repeat. And that just uh, is a very time-consuming and laborious process whenever we now have a computer and a software that can do it instantaneously for us. Now, I think one of the most intriguing aspects of, of what I've heard about this is the use of uh, wearables and biometrics. Tell me a little bit about how that works. You mentioned people opting into studies. What does that give you that maybe goes a level beyond what you can get from a, from a video analysis or something like that? Sure. So uh, those are, they are surveys or studies or whatever you'd like to call them. Um, and they are, they're, they're, they're wearables. And it's, it's a true survey where we act, ask participants to opt in. It's a, it's a voluntary item. And they usually wear a Fitbit. Uh, that's what we've been using. Uh, you can use Apple Watch. a lot of other different pieces of, of technology. I'm not endorsing any particular uh, company for that. But basically, you're trying to obtain that biometric data of stress. What's your heart rate? as compared to a resting heart rate when it's elevated. And what we'll do is we'll take that video analytics that we've done and we'll also map over, we'll do a stress map of through that path of whether it be congestion or even just normal flow, where do the stress levels elevate and relax? And then what we do is we try to focus on those stress, high stress areas and the stress maps, solve those problems first. One of the interesting things 
out of those trends that we identify in stress maps is that it's not what we see, and that's why the survey and the opt-in is so important. What we see in the stress map may not necessarily be what's impacting good or bad design. So a perfect example is uh, some of the studies through our stress maps that we've been developing in our transportation market. And we've identified through those stress maps that the information we're gathering is really interesting. It doesn't necessarily mean that a high stress area is a dangerous area or an area that we shouldn't be, that we should be focusing on. So the four different scenarios we identify are, we have a high stress area where we're seeing more crashes and that's where users are feeling unsafe and the crashes are indicating that it's unsafe. We're seeing an area where a second area where crashes are low and stress is low. So that would say that the users feel safe and the crashes indicate that it's staying safe. And here's where the anomalies start to come in because those two data sets are pretty straightforward. Low crashes, low stress, area must be designed well. High stress, high crashes, something's not right. Here's where the anomalies come in. That's scenarios three, three and four. And scenario three would be where we have high stress, but no crashes. So what's going on there? What's causing users to feel unsafe and take much more caution? Obviously, fewer crashes is a good thing. But what's driving that higher stress? If we went through our previous processes of manual calculations, we would have identified, well, there's no crashes here. So why are we worried about it? Um, and then you know, the fourth scenario is we have more crashes, but less stress. So wait a second, what's going on here? We've got all these crashes, but everyone feels incredibly safe. Why are we having more crashes? Is it because people are becoming relaxed, too relaxed? Uh, what's driving those things? So what we'll do is we'll take the wearables, we'll uh, get those individuals or the survey participants to, to wear them, opt into the system, and then go through that particular process, whether it be driving down a road, walking down a sidewalk, checking in at a hospital, going through an airport, going through their everyday work life in the office, whatever it may be. And we try to identify with a stress map where those elevated stress points are. And we also try to identify other data sets, again, using the transportation example, are there crashes? Are there in an office space? Are there places not being used? What's going on in those particular areas? And then we go to the survey participants and we get their feedback. And if we don't have that stress map, it's difficult to obtain what questions we need to be asking to those participants. And it's also going to be difficult if we just do a flat survey. You know, the participants Participants may subconsciously not even acknowledge an area where they're feeling higher stress or lower stress, but maybe a problem area. So what we try to do is identify the problem areas first, just through true biometric data. The, the facts are the facts, the numbers are the numbers. There's no subjectiveness to it. Identify those locations or those problem points, and then utilize the survey information to try to hone in on why is that a problem area? Why is that a high or a low stress area? And then we try to make informed design decisions on that. Now, a lot of people say, well, that's great, but that's in an office space that's already built, or that's in a hospital that's been functioning for six months. How does that help me with my new hospital? Well, if we're doing that enough with our existing clients, we're developing multiple data sets that will identify macro trends where we've learned we've, we've got a 
patient check-in process at a hospital that we've been doing the same for 20 hospitals and we're receiving the same results across those hospitals, all 20 hospitals, when we do the 21st, let's not replicate that. And I think that with a company of our size doing as many hospitals as we're doing at once or airports or roadways or whatever it may be, the data that we're getting is exponential in terms of its quantity and it just keeps growing and growing and growing and growing daily. So it's not a multi-year process, although the more data we have, the better. I think we're starting to see some really good data sets and we've only really been diving into it for the past year or so. So one question that uh, comes up about this technology a lot is, I guess you could call it the big brother aspect. What does privacy look like? What does the need to keep this data secure look like? And, you know, how do you kind of deal with that when you're talking about things like uh, collecting data from both sources that are passive, like video cameras, and, um, you know, active things that folks are wearing for biometrics? Yeah, Eli, it's a great question. And one of the most common ones that that we get when we start talking about data-driven design and analytics. And yeah, I'm going to start by qualifying. I'm not a cybersecurity expert, so I'm really the probably the least person qualified to talk about it, but I will talk about what experiences we've had and things that we've done. So a yeah, big key for Gresham Smith and what we've done is we really do have everyone opt in. It, it's a voluntary process to wearing the wearables um, and providing that biometric data so we can develop our stress maps. Uh, so there is a voluntary component to it. If we have employees or people in the community who don't want to participate, it's not a forced thing. We don't want them to be, feel pressured to do that. In terms of the, the bigger aspect, though, because that's pretty easy for Gresham Smith to control the surveys that they're implementing, right? Um, but as things start to become mandatory to a degree or, or convenient, whether it be checking in at a hospital or, you know, going through a scanner before you go into work at your factory, um, who's keeping that data and why? There's different uses. One of the most common uh, things that's being implemented is a token aspect. So basically what the company's data is keeping is, is a token, a QR code, basically. This code has to match. And then your biometric data creates a corresponding QR code. So basically, as you walk through the scanner, it's not keeping all of the biometric data on your, your face structure, your eyes, your height, weight, everything like that. It's basically taking all of that information and writing an encrypted code that just basically runs through a scanner. So to a degree, it's no different than the ID card that you swipe to go through um, uh, your turnstiles at work. It's, uh, it's just your face is creating that barcode rather than an actual piece of equipment. So effectively, you become the token. You're not carrying a token. Obviously, there are certain scenarios where that data is going to be kept. Um, and what I mean by that is if you're an employee working at a uh, working at the NSA, you know, they're going to want to keep your biometric data because it's a highly secure area. So there is a little bit of a, a big brother aspect to it in certain uses in certain scenarios. But for the uses that that we have, we're not interested in the biometric data itself. We're interested in the trends. So we're not interested in John Doe and blonde hair, blue eyes, social security number. We're interested in the fact that a, a male has walked through a space and what his stress levels were when he when he used it. That's what we're really interested in. And 
not just one John Doe, but thousands, as much data as we can get. So not really interested in the actual uh, data. And I would say that for the most part, uh, most companies that are doing uh, this type of design aren't interested in any of that actual data. Um, so yeah, so I'd, I'd say between the opting in and the fact that a lot of the token aspects are moving to an encrypted barcode or QR code effectively, not actually maintaining your actual biometric data. I think there are ways that we can avoid the big brother aspect. And I think as time goes on, people will become more and more comfortable with that. So when you get an area, you know, that you identify, hey, this is a high stress area, uh, whether it's, I don't know, the elevator banks somewhere or sure. uh, going through an airport uh, somewhere where you have to wait in line or maybe somewhere less obvious. If it isn't an already existing space, what can what will you look at to see what's contributing to it? You mentioned stuff like light, noise levels, temperature. I mean, what are you kind of going through and saying um, when you're looking at what might be causing the stress? Sure. So. Uh, th those things I mentioned earlier are, are things. So we'll, we'll check temperature. We'll check um, the light levels. How much natural light are we getting? We'll, we'll check dwell time. What, is it boredom? I mean, that literally could be what's causing some of this inefficient design is people are sitting in a space and they're just bored. Um, we check uh, noise levels. You know, is it distracting in these particular spaces causing more stress? Um, and, train, you know, and then we try to find some unique uh, data points that would trigger stress for each individual market or building type or project type. So for airports, a lot of our uh, data is based off of throughput. How many passengers per hour can this facility process? So we'll check what's our speed on passengers per hour and how does that compare to industry standards? If it's a transportation uh, project, like I was mentioning earlier, we'll check car speed data compared to the speed limit. We'll check uh, crash data. Uh, compared to what industry standards are. Um, it, it's, there's a lot of different environmental items that impact our stresses every day. And we try to identify as much of those environmental drivers. We try to gather information on that as much as possible, compare that to the stress and see which one may be the predominant driver. And then again, we do have to go through that subjective analysis with the actual user, ask them questions. Okay, we'll use an office building, for example. Um, let's say we're doing a survey in an office building and we are implying, uh, employing one of our beacon or tag technologies, a lot of different buzzwords that people like to use, whether it's a beacon or a tag. And basically what it does is it doesn't even really measure what the biometric data is. It's basically a repeater that picks up how long people are dwelling in spaces. Now we tie that to the individuals and the spaces and the stress map that we line out. But do we identify that in an office we've got one quadrant of the building that's super utilized. We've got another quadrant, two quadrants kind of average. And we got another quadrant, let's say that's not utilized at all in terms of dwell time. And we will then go ask people, or we'll check the temperature. Okay, is the temperature consistent across the building? Um, yeah, it is. Okay, let's say it's 72 degrees throughout the entire space. Okay, well then temperature is probably not the driver. Uh, we go through and we look at the design itself. Are there different colors? Is the, are the materials soft and do they and warm and they speak to the people that are using it? Yeah, it's pretty much the same design throughout. So, okay, it's not a 
materiality thing. The furniture's uh, different. It's not like we've got nothing but hard chairs in one area and all soft plush chairs in another. So it's not driving. So what, what's causing it? And we identify, well, that one quadrant of the building has 25% less daylight than the rest of the, the building does for whatever reason, whether it be the shades are drawn or whether it be it's actually a hard wall. We can go through and identify, okay, do we then repurpose those rooms or that quadrant for a different use? Or do we need to actually go improve the building itself? Do we need to go add more, more windows to it? Do we need to bring in more natural light? Or is it as simple as, hey, guys, somebody forgot to open the shades uh, this morning. Let's try to make sure that we're going through and doing that every day to improve the usability of the space. There's a lot of different factors, and I could keep going on and on and on and on about all the different things we could do. But that's those are the types of processes we're employing. It could be super sophisticated, complex answers to how we solve a problem. Or sometimes it's just as simple as, hey, guys, let's make sure that the shades are being drawn. Or if we need to put in automatic shades, let's put in automatic shades so it does it automatically. It may be as simple as that. So there's, there's all sorts of ranges on what the problem solving may be. So we've all certainly experienced a lot of stress in the past uh, almost two years now. And post-COVID, I know there's a lot of anxiety around some people around returning to public spaces, especially crowded spaces like uh, airport terminals and office buildings with, um, you know, cubicles in them and um, the open floor plans that have been so popular recently. How can design address this and how do you see designs uh, changing in response to some of these um, stress markers and stress mapping that you're doing? How can design help people be more comfortable returning to some of these spaces? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and before we, we did the podcast, we were able to talk a little bit about you know the pandemic itself and how it's changed our lives and, and all the different impacts that we've had. And I believe that you know, we were, as a society, pushing towards a different way of life, a way of conducting business, and a different way of working and living. And this pandemic has accelerated. It's been an accelerant to some of the changes that we were already making. I was already replacing some of my business trips in person for in-person meetings to Zoom calls. That, some of that was already happening before the pandemic, and the pandemic accelerated that. Using the airport as an example, we were seeing trends in the late 20-teens that passengers were moving away from wanting to interact with individuals. Passengers were interested in checking in at home. You know, the boarding pass is a perfect example of that. We went from everybody wanted to go to the ticket counters to get their boarding pass. They could go through the security checkpoint, get on a plane to, well, I don't really don't want to stop there. I want to, I, I want to touch, I want a humanless experience. I want to go just print my boarding pass at home. And then it went from boarding pass at home to now it's on my mobile phone. And even some of the airlines are, were running beta tests on biometric boarding passes. You are the token. You as the individual are the token. So I, I believe that the pandemic was an accelerant to it, and it also identified some different flaws on an accelerated pace in what we were doing. What I mean by that is we were going down a 
different roads of trying to employ these technologies in a certain way that was really just for convenience of a certain operation. It really wasn't taking the human experience. It was taking the human experience into account, but it wasn't taking so much human safety and the health and safety into account. So I think what you're seeing is that approach is going to promote a more touchless or a, a less uh, touch points with other humans throughout the process. So that way you don't interact and possibly transmit a, a virus of some kind like COVID. And I think that it's going to also provide us opportunities to the technologies that we're employing to help create some of that limited human interactions. So that way we don't go through the process of uh, transmitting diseases, a lot of those same sensors can be used in other manners. Like I was mentioning earlier, we've got the temperature sensors, we've got uh, airflow sensors, we've got all sorts of different sensors where we're really putting, making the building to the point where the building's a, a functioning living piece of software. And we can use that same technology and development that we're utilizing to create a better human experience, create better designs. We can also utilize that those pieces of technology uh, and equipment to better define how a building functions. So to make things, make people feel more comfortable, we are utilizing that technology and equipment to identify, hey, we need to clean the restrooms a little more often based off regular. We need to change the air filters more regularly uh, based off of what's going on. You know, these sensors help manage that. So I think it's going to make healthier buildings just as a byproduct of us trying to gather as much data about the building itself. Just as, as a byproduct of trying to improve everything. You know, one of the big things as well is if you look at the, the, the big driver between, or the big driver for COVID is we need to social distance. We need to keep a distance apart. And, you know, one of the things that came up in the, uh, using airports again as an example, that came up in the late 20s is um, some of our public officials stated that, you know, LaGuardia is like a third world country. And, you know, it probably... You know, it, was, it was an advanced airport at the time, and they're obviously building a new LaGuardia now. But the reason it felt like a third world country is because it was a very compressed design. You know, the width of the concourse was quite narrow. We had a lot of people passing through that facility, and they felt cramped. Their perception was that they felt on top of each other. Um, you know, there are design things and design approaches that can be taken that changes that perception you know if the same concourse was just reorganized a little bit so that way you had some overflow space it's more natural light uh, perhaps instead of just a single story space with an eight-foot ceiling you had a two-story space it starts to change the perspective and the, the perception of how that space feels so i think that covid is going to drive us down a road of either creating larger spaces that way people have a more flexibility and more space around them so they don't feel congested. Um, it's going to be an approach of creating or trying to create that perception of that. If we're in a limited footprint and we are going to be in a somewhat congested area, how do we make the space feel like it's not congested? And then through all the different sensors and technologies that we're implementing to, to analyze stress, to analyze passenger flow or patient flow or employee flow and utilization of a space, those same sensors are going to tell us how the building's functioning and how it's operating and how can we make it the healthiest building possible. So long-winded way around explaining to all of the different impacts to, uh, of what COVID will do. 
it's going to be an accelerant to some of the, the limited interactions. It's going to implement a lot of sensors to create a much more smart building so we can make it a healthier building. And then we're going to have to go through and create designs that help create either larger spaces to eliminate congestion or the perception that the space isn't congested. Well, healthier buildings with more space that stress us out less. I yeah. can get behind that. Ben, those are all the questions we've got. I uh, just want to thank you for uh, taking the time today. If people are curious about finding out more um, about Gresham Smith and the work you're doing, where can they find that? Yeah, sure. The, the, they can go to www.greshamsmith.com. Um, if for those who are in Charlotte and really interested in seeing what we're doing specifically in Charlotte, you can go to www.greshamsmith.com backslash Charlotte, and you'll see all the great stuff that we're working on, not only at the airport, but throughout our different markets throughout the city. Great. Ben, thanks again. Have a great rest of the day. Eli, thank you. It was a lot of fun. I really appreciate you having me on today. Thanks for joining us on the Future Charlotte podcast, produced by me, Eli Portillo, at the UNC Charlotte Urban Institute. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you like the show, please rate it, share it with your friends, and keep looking to the future, Charlotte.